Hello, and welcome back to the Historia Dramatica podcast. I'm your host, Willem Connor. Thank you very much for listening. And since you are listening to this, I'd like to congratulate you for reaching the final episode in our series on the Ukrainian War of Independence. It's been a long ride up to this point, but I'm happy to have been your guide on this journey thus far. At the top of the show, I'd like to inform you of the topic of our next series, which will be on the Roman Emperor Julian the Apostate. After having spent so much time covering the events of the modern era, it'll be nice to have a change of pace and to go back into classical antiquity for the first time in this series. Anyway, without further ado, let's get on with the show. In the last episode of our series on the Ukrainian War of Independence, we continued to trace the developments in Ukraine following the fall of the Hetmanate. The period between December 1918 and February 1919 saw the ascendancy of the Directory, a new executive body for the Ukrainian People's Republic. Under the leadership of Simon Petlura, the Directory quickly retook Kyiv following the abdication of the Hetman and the withdrawal of the German army. However, almost immediately, internal divisions and external invasions threatened the Directory's already tenuous grasp on the country. In the west, a revanchist Poland sought to annex the territory of western Ukraine. In the south, the Entente powers, specifically France and Greece, had launched a sizable force at the port city of Odessa, and in the north and east, Soviet Russia threatened to intervene in Ukrainian affairs once more. The Bolsheviks, with the assistance of the anarchist warlord Nestor Makhno, invaded Ukraine in February 1919, and quickly took over most of the country. The Directory was forced to flee the capital for the relative safety of the town of Venetia, and later to further west to the town of Rivne. Petlora was desperate to win the support of the Entente powers, as he believed it was the only way that Ukrainian independence could be secured. To this end, he sought to appease the Entente's representatives, who disapproved of the socialist nature of the Ukrainian government, and who considered the Directory to be little better than the Bolsheviks. The ultra-socialist Volodymyr Venichenko tendered his resignation from the government for this purpose, and Petlura himself resigned from the Social Democratic Party, but not from his seat on the Directory. These actions turned out to be quite controversial. As I've hopefully impressed on you by now, the Ukrainian national movement had a significant left-wing bent to it, and the seeming right-wing turn of the Directory and their appeasement of the capitalist allies did not go over well with many politically active Ukrainians. Petlura was caught in quite the conundrum here. He had to strike a delicate balance between maintaining popular support at home among the left-wing elements of the Ukrainian national movement, all the while making reassurances to the Allies that he was not, in fact, a communist. In April 1919, a new cabinet, primarily consisting of social democrats, was organized by one Boris Martos. The Martos cabinet vowed to win over the Ukrainian peasantry, which at the time was greatly dissatisfied with the Soviet occupation. In doing so, Martos declared that the UNR would not rely on the assistance of any external political actors. Martos's new cabinet was opposed by the more right-wing and nationalist elements within the Ukrainian government. Opposition rallied around the figure of Volodymyr Oskiliko, a regional warlord, or Ataman, who, on April 29th, attempted a coup d'etat against Petlura. Declaring his belief that the directory had been infiltrated by Bolshevist elements, Oskilko declared himself commander-in-chief, and issued warrants for the arrest of Petlora, Martos, and the other directors. They were able to evade arrest, however, prompting Oskilko's own men to betray him in turn, sending him to flee into Poland. The Oskilko affair, as it is known to history, demonstrated the clear rift that existed within the Ukrainian national movement at this time, between the left wing, which favored rapprochement with the Soviets, and the right wing, which favored cooperation with the Entente powers. This was just one of several fault lines with which ran through the Ukrainian national movement at this time. 
another divisive issue, one perhaps more consequential than the socialist-nationalist divide, was the Galician question. When the Western Ukrainian People's Republic it was founded in the wake of the Austro-Hungarian Empire's collapse in the autumn of 1918, the nascent republic was immediately beset upon by the newly independent Polish Republic. The Western Ukrainians, despite the advantages that they held over their Eastern counterparts in terms of organizational ability, nevertheless suffered defeat after defeat at the hands of the Poles. Yet the Directory was unwilling to offer the, any assistance to the Galicians in their war, for fear that fighting against the Entente-allied Polish Republic would further alienate the Allies whom they were so desperately trying to win the favor of. The Galicians, on the other hand, sought to align themselves with General Anton Denikin and his volunteer army. I've mentioned Denikin a few times in passing, but I think a more proper introduction is in order here. Anton Ivanovich Denikin was a general, formerly of the Imperial Russian Army, who became commander-in-chief of the anti-Bolshevik Volunteer Army following the untimely demise of Lavr Kornilov in April 1918. Denikin has a historical reputation for his fiercely uncompromising v vision of Russian ultranationalism. Part of this manifested itself in the vicious attacks against the region's Jewish populations, as described two episodes prior. It is estimated that men under Denikin's nominal command were responsible for up to 20% of anti-Jewish pogroms during this period. Denikin was also fiercely devoted to the ideal of, in his own words, quote, a united and indivisible Russia, end quote. He naturally envisioned Ukraine as an integral component of the Russian state, and ex exclusively referred to it by its old official name, Little Russia. Many of Denikin's operations took place within the borders of Little Russia, and wherever Denikin and his armies went, use of the Ukrainian language was banned, Ukrainian nationalists were arrested, and other similarly repressive measures were employed against the Ukrainian people. This obviously made him quite unpopular among the peasantry, who continually rose up against him, and with the Directory, which was necessarily opposed to his chauvinistic attitudes. The issue lay in the fact that Denikin, and the white movement more broadly, enjoyed the support of the same Entente powers that the Directory also sought to win favor of. Petlor and the Directory were obviously wary of Denikin and his intentions, but the Galicians were predisposed to negotiate and cooperate with him. This divide between the Eastern and Western Ukrainians constituted not merely a disagreement on strategy, but a conflict over the fate of the country itself. Meanwhile, the Askilko affair also served to illustrate to Petlora exactly how desperate his military situation actually was. His forces were being pushed back on all fronts, and he could hardly rely on his commanders in the field to remain loyal to him. With this in mind, the Directory began an offensive on another front, the Diplomatic Front, with the hopes of finally garnering Entente's support. The Directory had inherited from the Hetmanet a relatively impressive diplomatic corps, which they now intended to fully utilize. Ukrainian diplomatic missions were sent to over 20 European countries, but met with little success anywhere. The Directory put its greatest efforts towards achieving recognition at the ongoing peace conference in Paris. Ukraine's most seasoned diplomats were sent to Versailles, with the hope of persuading those present, particularly the so-called Big Four, the leaders of the United Kingdom, France, Italy, and the United States, to recognize Ukrainian independence. The Ukrainians were at a clear disadvantage here. None of the great powers had managed to articulate a coherent stance on the so-called Russian question, owing to the utterly confused state of affairs in the former empire. The Ukrainians hoped to play on the great powers' opposition to Bolshevism to plead their case. They postulated that an independent Ukraine, which would be supported by the international community, could serve as a bulwark against Bolshevism and keep both German and Russian territorial ambitions in check. 
They appealed to the Allies' espousal of the ideal of self-determination. But ultimately, the issues pertaining to Ukraine were too contentious, and Ukraine was never officially recognized at the conference. For one, the Allies still did not approve of the form of government that the Ukrainians seemed to have chosen for themselves. French Prime Minister Georges Clemenceau was perhaps the most vehemently anti-communist of the Big Four. He declared his belief that Petlura was almost a Bolshevik, while British Prime Minister David Lloyd George dismissed Petlura as a reckless adventurer. Particularly thorny was the issue of Eastern Galicia. The Allies were quite interested in seeing the resurgence of a strong Polish state. In fact, Polish independence was one of American President Woodrow Wilson's famous 14 points. Poland, unlike Ukraine, had enjoyed official representation at the conference from the very beginning, and the Allies were therefore inclined to believe the Poles when they claimed that the Ukrainian separatist movement in eastern Galicia was little more than part of a German scheme to dismember Poland's territory. Nevertheless, the Allies were compelled to arbitrate some sort of arrangement between the Poles and Ukrainians in Galicia to end the conflict there. In February, a diplomatic mission under French General Joseph Barthélemy was sent to Lviv to meet with Polish and Ukrainian representatives and to bring a halt to hostilities, if only temporarily. A temporary armistice was indeed reached, but the Ukrainians rejected a proposal which would have had them withdraw from certain strategic territories until the Ukrainian-Polish border could be delineated in Paris. Conflict erupted once more, and this time the Ukrainians began to make some significant gains, causing the Allies no small degree of stress. Another inter-Allied mission, this time led by South African General Louis Botha, attempted to facilitate a peace agreement between the two belligerents, but this time it was the Poles who rejected the agreement on the grounds that they would only receive a third of Galician territory. This led Lloyd George and Wilson to denounce Poland's ambitions for Eastern Galicia as being imperialist in nature. However, the Poles and their lobbyists at Versailles eventually won out. The ultimate decision of the Big Four was articulated in a missive sent to Warsaw on June 25th, quote, with a view to protecting the persons and property of the peaceful population of eastern Galicia against the dangers to which they are exposed by the Bolsheviks, the Supreme Council of the Allied and Associated Powers has decided to authorize the forces of the Polish Republic to pursue their operations as far as the rivers of Brook, the river which separates Galicia from eastern Ukraine. This authorization does not, in any way, affect the decisions to be taken later by the Supreme Council for the settlement of the political status of Galicia." End quote. Protests from the Ukrainians against this decision fell upon deaf ears, and, in the face of a renewed Polish offensive, the demoralized Galician army was compelled to withdraw across the Zbruch River into eastern Ukraine. At this time, the Galician army numbered about 100,000 strong, of whom only about 40,000 were fit for active duty. The Galicians made the decision to join forces with Petlura, who at this time held only a narrow strip of land east of the Zbruch. At this same time, Danikin's armies had begun a massive offensive, advancing westward through Ukraine and north towards Moscow. The Red Army was forced to regroup and face this existential threat, leaving a pathway open for the Ukrainians to retake Kyiv. The fact that the capture of Kyiv was one of Danikin's objectives as well presented the Ukrainians with a problem, which was that no agreement existed between the Ukrainians and the Whites that could forestall hostilities between the two. In light of this, some Ukrainian military commanders suggested striking southward instead, towards Odessa, but Petlora insisted that the recapture of Kyiv was the top priority. Ukrainian forces entered the capital on August 30th, after a short battle with the Red Army garrison there. 
The following day, Danikin's forces also entered the city. The Galician officers negotiated a ceasefire between themselves and the Whites, and for a very brief period, the flags of both Russia and Ukraine flew over the city hall of Kiev. This brief period of coexistence between the two opposing forces was brought to an abrupt end when a brash young Ukrainian officer cut down the Russian flag and flew it on the ground where it was trampled by the horses of a column of cavalry. Hostilities soon broke out in the city, during which the Ukrainians, in the face of overwhelming superiority of the whites, were compelled to withdraw from the city. The Ukrainian camp was divided once again on their next move. Many of the eastern Ukrainians wished to declare war on Denikin immediately to avenge this incident. The Galicians, on the other hand, still argued in favor of collaboration with the whites. The Galicians were acutely aware of the desperate straits in which they found themselves. Lack of adequate supplies, combined with an epidemic of typhus, had now reduced the Galicians' fighting capacity to only 20,000 men, while Petlura's forces stood at only half that number. By October, one Galician officer wrote in his journal, quote, it is difficult for us to fight with the Danikonites. They are a valiant and well-trained army, and we are decimated by typhus and miserably defeated. End quote. By late October, early November, the Galicians' desperation had compelled them to, without proper authorization from either the Directory or their own government, open negotiations with Danikin. An initial agreement between the two was reached on November 6th, and a final one was concluded a week later. Per the terms of their agreement, the Galician army agreed to place themselves under Danikin's command and incorporate themselves fully into the White Army, on the condition that they would not be made to fight against Petlora's forces. This action facilitated the final break between the Galicians and their eastern Ukrainian counterparts. By allying themselves with an avowed enemy of the Ukrainian nation, the Galicians were quickly branded as traitors by the eastern Ukrainians, while at the same time, the Galicians leveled the charge at Petlura that he, was preparing to sell them out to the Poles. While it is true that prior to this point, Petlura had expressed no intention of doing so, with the Galicians effectively out of the equation, the possibility of a Polish-Ukrainian alliance now lay open. Historian John Reshatar writes that the rupture between the Eastern and Western Ukrainians had its roots in what he claims were the significant differences which existed between Galicia and Ukraine. Quote, in 1919, the Galician Ukrainian was still incapable of understanding the socialist patriot of Kiev, who did not wish to fight against the workers of another nation but only with the bourgeoisie. Galicia had not experienced the Russian Revolution, and the struggle which they were leading was purely national rather than socio-economic, as was the case in the East. Conversely, the Eastern Ukrainian Social Democrat found it a simple matter to hurl the epithet of bourgeois at the Galicians and accuse them of being priest-ridden." Reshitar then proceeds to discuss the cultural and religious differences that existed between the two groups, how these led to the development of Ukrainian nationalism taking different paths, and how this ultimately manifested itself in the existence of two governments for what was ostensibly one nation. Simply put, the regional identity of the Galicians was given far greater weight than their national identity as Ukrainians. The Galicians were ultimately more concerned with the fate of their province itself rather than with the fate of Ukraine as a whole, and as such, they regarded as their true enemies not the Russians, but the Poles. The defection of the Galicians came as quite the opportune time for all parties involved. By November 1919, the Volunteer Army had outrun its supply lines, and their Moscow offensive had stalled out. Petlura believed that, had the Galicians not chosen to defect when they did, their combined force stood a decent chance of encircling and destroying the retreating Volunteer Army. With the loss of the bulk of his forces, and squeezed between the Poles advancing in the west and the Soviets in the east, 
Petlura consolidated what little was left of the Ukrainian government in a small number of railway cars, traveling from station to station in northwestern Ukraine, hoping to evade capture by the enemy. Ultimately, it was his own people that Petlura had to be afraid of. Bands of armed peasants attacked his train, ransacking what was left of the directory's treasury, and separating Petlura from his war ministry and top officers, who were forced to take a divergent route, which resulted in their ultimate arrest by Polish authorities. Petlura's ministers entreated him to finally evacuate Ukraine entirely, and to appeal to the Polish government in Warsaw for aid, which he did in late December 1919. In the wake of the Soviet retreat from Ukraine in mid-1919, and in anticipation of a renewed offensive into the region, Lenin and the Bolshevik leadership reached the conclusion that a serious reformulation of their policies pertaining to Ukraine was in order. In a private letter dated December 1919, Lenin wrote, quote, This is why we great Russian communists must be ready to make concessions in our differences with the Ukrainian communists. When the differences concern the independence of Ukraine, the nature of its union with Russia, and the national problem in general. End quote. On December 3, 1919, Lenin issued a new resolution that was to guide Soviet policy in Ukraine for most of the ensuing decade. Among the most important articles were those that proclaimed the independence of the Ukrainian SSR in a federal connection with Russia, the immediate Ukrainization of Soviet administration in the country, and a new land policy, which replaced collectivization with redistribution as the guiding principle. Meanwhile, Petlura, in exile in Warsaw, was busy negotiating for a Polish-Ukrainian anti-Bolshevik alliance. The central figure of the Second Polish Republic was, at this time, its head of state, Józef Pilsudski. Without getting too deep into the intricacies of Polish politics of the period, or of their conflict with the Soviets, it should suffice to say that Pilsudski was fiercely anti-Bolshevik. His foreign policy was driven by a desire to create what he called the Intermarium, which was envisioned as the Federation of Central and Eastern European States that would at the same time reunite the lands of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth and would form a geopolitical barrier against the Bolsheviks. The territory of Ukraine was naturally seen by Pilsudski as a crucial component of this federation, and so he sought to extend Polish influence into the country as far as possible. The desperate situation in which the Ukrainian nationalists now found themselves made the negotiations between Pilsudski and Petlura remarkably one-sided. As conditions of Polish military assistance, Petlura was forced to accede to basically all of Pilsudski's demands, including the renunciation of all Ukrainian claims on Galicia. The document which came about as a result of these negotiations is therefore characterized by historians as being rather unfair to the Ukrainians. In every article, it is readily apparent that the wording was chosen in such a deliberate way so as to ensure that it was understood that Ukraine was, unequivocally, the junior partner in this relationship, subservient to Poland in every respect. Article 1 of the treaty specified that the Poles would recognize the legitimacy of the Ukrainian government only so long as Petlura remained as head of state. From a legal perspective, Petlura was not even authorized to make such wide-ranging concessions to the Poles, without even once consulting his fellow directors. Article 8 stipulated that the terms of the treaty must remain secret, but for most politically aware Ukrainians, it did not take much speculation to conclude that whatever Petlura had done to secure an alliance with Poland must have come at a high cost. Thus, when Petlura affixed his signature to the Treaty of Warsaw on April 21, 1920, Reshitar writes that he was signing his own political death warrant. Even though the exact terms of the treaty were not made public, Petlura's alliance with Pelsudski was regarded by Ukrainian nationalists of all regional affiliations, 
not just the Galicians, as a terrible betrayal of the Ukrainian nation. From its exile in Vienna, the government of the Western Ukrainian People's Republic expressed its opposition to this treaty. Also voicing their disapproval were other prominent leaders of the Ukrainian national movement, such as Mikhailo Hrushchevsky and Volodymyr Venichenko, who denounced his former co-director as, quote, a pernicious and filthy gladiator slave of the Entente, end quote, and, quote, an unhealthily ambitious maniac, soaked up to the ears in the blood of pogromized Jews, politically illiterate and willing to accept any and all reaction in order to preserve his own power, end quote. The Soviets, too, were in a position to take advantage of Petlura's folly, as they were able to claim, without great exaggeration, that Petlura was selling out his country to the Polish landholding class. In fact, Petlura's alliance with Poland had largely discredited him in the eyes of the Ukrainian masses. When the Soviets would invade Ukraine for the third and final time in the coming weeks, they would manage to win over a decisive mass of the peasantry over to their cause, not only because of their revised policies regarding Ukraine, but also because there was a widespread perception that Petlura had largely abandoned the social cause in favor of a blind nationalism. Shortly after the conclusion of the Treaty of Warsaw, an addendum was added which laid out the terms of the joint Polish-Ukrainian offensive that was to be undertaken shortly. These terms were just as disadvantageous to the Ukrainians as those of the treaty itself were. Per the convention, Polish forces were to accompany the Ukrainians only to the Dnieper River, which would have cut the country in half and left it effectively as a rump state. Moreover, the Ukrainians were made to be responsible for the provisioning and transportation of the entire joint force. Petlora was allowed to create his own Ukrainian civil and military administration, but under strict Polish supervision. Provisions were also made for the eventual Polish withdrawal from the country, but the wording of the article was such that it theoretically allowed for the Polish army to occupy Ukraine indefinitely. Less than a week after the Treaty of Warsaw was signed, combined Polish and Ukrainian forces began to advance on Kyiv. They entered the city on May 7th and continued to advance eastward. Soviet propaganda claimed that their final destination was the Russian border city of Smolensk, but in reality, there was no conclusive evidence that the Poles had a concrete plan to bring the war to a decisive conclusion. The Polish-Ukrainian campaign of spring 1920 had the unintended consequence of providing the Soviet government with the potential to plan the patriotic sentiments of the Russian people against the foreign invaders. The Red Army launched a massive counteroffensive that summer, and on June 12th, retook Kiev for the last time, marking the 16th time the city had changed hands over the course of the last three years. Confident of victory over Poland, the Red Army surged westward, forcing the Polish-Ukrainian forces back across the Zabruk River and all the way to the gates of Warsaw. Although what little remained of Petlura's army participated in the so-called Miracle on the Vistula, in the course of which the Red Army was repelled from the Polish capital, this fact still did not prevent Pilsudski from hanging his Ukrainian ally out to dry. By this point in time, Pilsudski was ready to end hostilities with the Soviets, and negotiations began in the Latvian capital of Riga. Ukrainian Foreign Minister Levitsky made one last desperate overture to the Soviet government for the UNR to be officially recognized at these proceedings, but the response from Moscow was that the Soviets would not deign to deal with a regime that was practically non-existent. Instead, the Ukrainian interests in these negotiations would be represented by the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic. Pilsudski did not object to this and made no effort to have the UNR represented at the peace talks whatsoever, stating that they were only, quote, one of the many parties struggling for power in the Ukraine, end quote. 
The document which resulted from these negotiations, the Treaty of Riga, was signed by the Second Polish Republic on one side, and the Russian Soviet Socialist Republic and the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic on the other. The terms of this treaty effectively redrew the borders of Eastern Europe, along lines very similar to those laid out in the Treaty of Warsaw. Polish control over Eastern Galicia and the western portion of Volhynia were confirmed, while the Poles recognized the remainder of the Ukrainian territory as constituting an independent Ukrainian SSR. Petlura felt understandably betrayed seeing as how his supposed ally, Pilsudski, had taken it upon himself to negotiate this treaty without any input from him or any other Ukrainians. But as negotiations were taking place at Riga, Petlura refused to give up. He took his army, now numbering around 20,000, and led them back across the Zabruk River. They managed to capture and briefly hold the castle town of Kamianets Podilski. At this time, the White Army, now under the leadership of Baron Pyotr Wrangel, launched a renewed offensive in southern Ukraine, from their base of operations on the Crimean Peninsula. Petlura hoped, like many others, that Wrangel's army constituted a serious threat to the Soviets, and Wrangel's more moderate disposition, at least compared to that of Denikin, gave Petlura some hope that an alliance could be worked out. However, once peace with Poland was concluded, the Red Army was free to regroup and launch a counter-offensive against the Whites. Teaming up with Nestor Makhno for one last time, a final Red Offensive in November 1920 compelled the Whites under Wrangel to evacuate from the Crimean Peninsula, thus bringing the main action of the Russian Civil War to a decisive end. Petlura and his government were forced to relocate once more, this time to the Polish town of Tarnov, where their gracious host put them up in hotel rooms. Petlura was understandably not very popular among the other Ukrainian nationalist leaders who made up his government in exile. He lived in constant fear of assassination, he remained in Poland until 1923, at which point he moved to Paris, where he lived for three years, until his fears of assassination proved to be well-founded, and he was gunned down in the streets of Paris by a Jewish watchmaker, who was seeking to avenge the pogroms committed under Petlora's name. The lands that were ceded to the Soviets by the Treaty of Riga were reconstituted as the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic. Although the Ukrainian SSR was part of the Soviet Union, which was officially established on December 30th, 1922, and most of the important decisions were made in Moscow, the Ukrainian people finally had a stable political entity on Ukrainian territory. A quote from author Sergei Yakulchik, quote, The Ukrainian people obtained a territorial and administrative framework on which to build their modern, if Soviet, identity. Soviet Ukrainian statehood furnished them with political institutions, leaders, state symbols, and state support for the national language and culture. End quote. The same could not be said for the Ukrainian territory, which was annexed by Poland, Czechoslovakia, and Romania. At the end of 1920, some 7 million Ukrainians found themselves living outside the borders of the Ukrainian SSR. During the interwar period, these states, particularly Poland and Romania, took on the character of what Yakelchik described as nationalizing states, that is to say, quote, states which openly used their state power to promote the status of, of their titular minorities, and to assimilate or marginalize their national minorities." End quote. Such efforts of Polonization and Romanization failed to entirely assimilate the Ukrainian people into the culture of their respective states. In fact, it had an opposite and unintended effect. It led to the radicalization of Ukrainian nationalism in this country, thereby explaining the rightward turn that characterized Ukrainian nationalism in the interwar period and during the Second World War. Now that we have reached the end of our narrative, I suppose it would be worthwhile to engage in some reflection. The Ukrainian War of Independence was over. 
the Ukrainian people had failed to achieve independent statehood for their nation. Ukraine was partitioned once more, with the majority of Ukrainians now subject to Polish or Soviet rule. During the same period, however, numerous other nations in Central and Eastern Europe had emerged from the collapse of the region's empires as independent states, of which Poland was just one example. In this enterprise, the Czechoslovaks, the Yugoslavs, the Finns, and even the Baltic peoples of Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania had all succeeded where the Ukrainians had failed. The obvious question to be asked is, of course, why? What factors had led to this outcome? This obvious question lacks an equally obvious answer. Writing in the middle of the 20th century, older historians such as Reshetar and Doroshenko had a tendency to emphasize the underdevelopment of the Ukrainian national movement in the years leading up to the revolution. As I explained way back in the first episode of this series, entering the 19th century, the Ukrainians had many disadvantages which hampered the development of nationalism, such as the lack of a literary language and high culture, and the lack of a history of independent statehood. Of course, the class structure of Ukrainian society on the eve of the revolution is another factor which must be taken into consideration. With the Russified gentry at the top, and an industrial proletariat consisting primarily of Russian and Yiddish speakers, Ukrainian nationalist sentiment was the purview of a relatively small middle-class intelligentsia, and the masses of rural peasantry. From very early on, this middle-class intelligentsia played a leading role in the Ukrainian national movement, a fact that can be cerned merely from a brief look into the lives of the movement's most prominent figures. For instance, both Mikhail Khrushchevsky and Dmitry Doroshenko were professors of history. Vinichenko was a novelist and playwright. Pitlora had been a prominent journalist. Yevhen Konovalets was a college-educated army officer. These men were also, for the most part, quite young, with the 50-year-old Hrushchevsky being the exception. Their youth lent them a powerful revolutionary zeal, but with their youth also came inexperience, ambition, and ideological dogmatism. As a result, the governments which they formed were riven with factional infighting, and led many within these governments to concern themselves more with the preservation of their own political power than with the welfare of the people they claimed to govern over. This dynamic served primarily to highlight the stark class differences between the peasantry and the intelligentsia. The individual peasant identified primarily with his or her own family, with their local village, and with their religious community. They simply could not conceive of themselves as belonging to a nation, which defined one's identity along ethnic or linguistic lines. Thus, the individual peasant felt little solidarity with the politicians who claimed to govern on their behalf. The peasant communes of rural Ukraine were essentially autarkic, concerned first and foremost with the material worries which characterized day-to-day -day village life. They did not concern themselves with the decrees coming down to them from Kiev, but rather with holding on to whatever they possessed, be it land, grain, or livestock, and, if possible, acquiring even more. The fundamentally acquisitive nature of the Ukrainian peasantry can explain the relative success of Nestor Makhno and his anarchists, who implemented democratic governance at the village level, and who enacted land reform along these lines. The resurgence of Bolshevik support in Ukraine in the waning days of the Civil War can also be attributed to their willingness to carry out land reform. Nevertheless, there had been some significant indicators that national consciousness had indeed began to take root among the peasant masses, whose conversion to the cause of independence might very well have tipped the scales in the Ukrainians' favor. For instance, there were the nearly 6 million votes cast for the Ukrainian branch of the Socialist Revolutionary Party in the elections to the All-Russian Constituent Assembly in 1917. Of course, the most obvious manifestation of the growing nationalist sentiment around the rural peasantry were the displays of spontaneous armed resistance to the forces of foreign occupier, be they German, Austrian, Polish, or Russian. This brings me to my next point. 
All the factors that I have discussed do not provide a comprehensive explanation for the failure of Ukrainians to achieve independent statehood in this period. Throughout history, nationalist movements elsewhere in Europe, and indeed across the world, had encountered similar obstacles in their struggles for independence and had managed to overcome them. As Doroshenko posited in his survey of Ukrainian history, under normal circumstances, the level of maturity that the Ukrainian national movement had reached by 1917 may very well have proved to be adequate enough to allow for the achievement and consolidation of independent statehood for Ukraine. However, as he continued, these were quite abnormal times. The geopolitical context of the First World War and Russian Revolution and Civil War must be taken into account. Since 1914, Ukraine had become a battleground within these aforementioned international conflicts. War brought with it immense devastation and the near-complete breakdown of public order within the country. The belligerents of these wars were, for the most part, opposed to Ukrainian independence and fought against those who were working towards this objective. This dynamic manifested itself early on, with the outbreak of hostilities between the Central Rada and the Soviet Russian government. To Lenin and company, despite their adoption of the rhetoric of national self-determination, the separation of Ukraine from Russia was something they could simply not countenance. The timely intervention of the Central Powers saved Ukraine from Bolshevik domination in the early days of 1918, but the Germans, of course, had their own designs on the region. The Central Rada was overthrown and replaced by a monarchical puppet government, effectively making Ukraine a German satellite. The collapse of the Central Powers at the end of 1918 made Ukraine a war zone once again, with the red and white Russian armies fighting back and forth, and with the Ukrainian nationalists caught in the crossfire. By the time the Soviets had invaded the country for the third and final time in mid-1920, the Ukrainian people were so utterly exhausted by the past six years of near-constant warfare that many were willing to support any government so long as it was nominally Ukrainian in form and delivered on its promises of land reform. The Soviet model, with its broad autonomy for the Ukrainian SSR, offered them just that. Although Ukraine did not achieve independent statehood as a result of its war of independence, it would be a mistake to view the war as being a complete failure for the Ukrainians. The years between 1917 and 1921 saw an unprecedented surge of Ukrainian nationalism, and although the independent Ukrainian nation-state collapsed, the ideals that the Ukrainian revolutionaries fought and died for lived on. In eastern Ukraine, the strength of the Ukrainian national movement forced the Soviets to recognize the legitimacy of their claims to constitute a separate nation. The Ukrainian SSR, with its nominal national sovereignty for the Ukrainian people, was born from this revolutionary ferment. The standard of Ukrainian nationalism was now held by this new state, the structure of which gave the Ukrainian people some ability to assert their national prerogatives. The development of Ukrainian nationalism was even fostered by the federal government of the USSR in the first years of its existence. In the regions of Ukraine occupied by Poland and other countries, the development of Ukrainian nationalism during the interwar period took on a starkly different character. In these places, where the Ukrainian people were denied even the flimsiest pretense of national self-determination, Ukrainian nationalism took on a more reactionary and revanchist character, one in which the ideal of Ukrainian independence and reunification became the ultimate goal, for which many were willing to commit unspeakable acts in the name of the nation. But all these developments in interwar Ukraine are, unfortunately, beyond the narrative scope of this series. Perhaps one day this podcast will revisit Ukraine during the interwar period and during the Second World War, but for now it is time for me to leave this time and place behind. I hope you have enjoyed this journey through this eventful yet understudied period of history. It has been my honor to be your guide. Do you have any lingering thoughts on the Ukrainian War of Independence? 
Is there anything I neglected to cover or did not cover appropriately? If so, please feel free to email me at historiadramaticapod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can always reach out to me via Twitter or Facebook, links to both of which can be found in this episode's description. If you like this series, I encourage you to check out the show's Patreon page and eBay Marketplace for ways to show your support. Also consider leaving a review on Apple Podcast, or whatever podcast platform you prefer to listen to. In any event, do be sure to tune in again in two weeks' time, as we travel back to the Roman Empire in the 4th century CE to retell the story of Emperor Julian, the last pagan ruler of Rome. So, until two weeks from now, this has been the Historia Dramatica Podcast. I'm your host, Willem Connor, signing off.